Section 3 of An Interpretation of Keats' Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3 The Story of Glaucus and Scylla The third book is mainly concerned with the story of Glaucus and Scylla. It tells how Glaucus, having won the power of living in the sea, saw and loved Scylla, line 399, and tried to win her, but, tiring of the pursuit, turned aside and yielded to the wiles of Circe, line 418. After a time, he awoke to a sense of his degradation and was condemned to impotence for a long space of time, while Scylla appeared to be dead, line 619. During this time, he was witness of a shipwreck. One of the men from the ship, being carried by the sea towards Glaucus, thrust a scroll into his hand, but fell back and perished with the rest. Line 674. On the scroll, Glaucus found a message that gave him hope of deliverance. When Endymion, in the course of his wanderings, met Glaucus, the old man hailed him joyfully and claimed his help. Line 234. By rightful use of the magic scroll, Glaucus was restored to youthful energy, and Scylla was revived. Line 780. While those of the dead, whose bodies had been carefully laid aside by Glaucus, during the period of his punishment, were restored to life, and all went in joyful procession to the Hall of Neptune. Line 868. There, after the singing of a hymn to the god, a vision of Oceanus was seen. Line 994. Endymion fell senseless, but in his swoon received the promise of Diana that he should soon be raised to immortality. When he awoke, he found himself in a cool forest beside a placid lake. Representing a poetical movement. We have found that in the first book of this poem, the underlying meaning, so far as one can trace it, appears to be concerned, in the earlier part of the book, with the new movement that made itself felt in the realm of English poetry from the middle of the 18th century, while in the latter part of the first and throughout the second book we are told of the experiences through which a poet might pass as he came under the influence of such a movement and strove to realise its ideals in his own work. In the third book it seems that the more individual aspect of the story retires into the background for a time and we are again chiefly concerned with the larger movements of English poetry. There is, as in the last book, an introductory passage of about forty lines, the significance of which may be more suitably considered when the meaning of the main theme of the book has been dealt with. But after this, there is a further passage, to line 187, that intervenes before the story really moves on its way again lines that are mainly devoted to praise of the beauty and influence of the moon. Endymion's love for the moon. We are told of the gentle and far-reaching nature of this influence. Thou dost bless everywhere with silver lip, kissing dead things to life. Line 56. Thy benediction passeth not one obscure hiding place, one little spot where pleasure may be sent. She is shining now, though with but a pale light, upon Endymion in his wanderings. Thy cheek is pale, 
for one whose cheek is pale thou dost bewail his tears who weeps for thee line seventy five endymion's love for diana but even these faint beams have power to warm the heart of endymion and to comfort him in his solitude endymion wonders at the power that she exercises it had pervaded all the occupations of his previous life and as he grew up it still blended with all his ardours line 160 then his strange love came and the influence of the moon grew less she came and thou didst fade and fade away yet not entirely no thy starry sway has been an underpassion to this hour line 177 he is torn between the attraction of the two dearest love forgive that i can think away from thee and live pardon me airy planet that i prize one thought beyond thine argent luxuries line 183 and it is of course obvious that he does not recognize the identity of the two the meaning of the contrast it can hardly be doubted if we keep in view the general purpose of the poem and the length at which this matter is treated that we have here something of significance in relation to the work of the poet some aspect of poetic theory that keats felt to be of importance it is of course true that keats had been from childhood passionately fond of moonlight and this fact no doubt influenced the tone of the passage and may indeed have given rise to it but it says more than this and one may find a clue to the further meaning in a repeated failure of endymion to recognize the identity of his heavenly visitant with the moon whose beauty affected him so powerfully and starting with this as a guide we may interpret the passage somewhat in this way footnote this point occurs in each of the four books when endymion sees the vision for the first time he is watching the moon and is fascinated by her beauty book one line five hundred and ninety one she disappears behind a cloud line five hundred and ninety seven and then the goddess appears line six hundred and two but he does not connect the two again before he begins his wanderings underground the beauty of the moon fills him with delight and longing but so little is he conscious of her identity that he begs her to point out his love's far dwelling book two line 178 in the fourth book the situation has grown even more complex because of the appearance of diana in a new form and the perplexity arising from his failure to perceive her identity is greater than ever book four lines 429 438 497 and line 95 end footnote cynthia the moon stands for that element in the attractiveness of poetry which depends upon beauty of form it is indeed an influence as widespread as life itself there is a rhythm in the growth of the flowers in the song of the birds in the movement of the rivers and the tides and it is of course a large part of the very essence of poetry but poetry must also express feeling and passion though the moving power of passion will visit the poet less frequently will be less constantly present as a force than the gentler and milder influence of beauty in form yet if the poet is to reach any high level of attainment 
he must come to recognize that these two, different as their appearance may be, are not to be finally separated. When the poet, in moments of greatest achievement, attains his ideal, he finds not merely that beauty of expression and beauty of feeling are both present, but that they can no longer be distinguished from one another. In the white heat of the finest inspiration, he learns that they are one. Footnote. Compare what Mr. A.C. Bradley says in his famous lecture, Poetry for Poetry's Sake. The value of versification, when it is indissolubly fused with meaning, can hardly be exaggerated. The gift for feeling it, even more, perhaps, than the gift for feeling the value of style, is the specific gift for poetry, as distinguished from other arts. But versification, taken as far as possible, all by itself, has a very different worth. Some aesthetic worth it has. How much? You may experience by reading poetry in a language of which you do not understand a syllable. The pleasure is quite appreciable, but it is not great. Nor in actual poetic experience do you meet with it as such at all. For, I repeat, it is not added to the pleasure of the meaning when you read poetry that you do understand. By some mystery, the music is then the music of the meaning, and the two are one. Oxford Lectures on Poetry, page 21. End footnote. Ocean Relics Meanwhile, Endymion has been wandering in the depths of ocean. He has passed many relics of former days. Old rusted anchors, helmets, breastplates large, of gone sea warriors, brazen beaks and targe, rudders that for a hundred years had lost the sway of human hand. Line 123. And these things give him a feeling of depression, which is only removed by the soothing influence of the moon. The passage based upon Shakespeare. The passage, as is well known, is based upon the account given by Clarence of one part of his dream, and Geoffrey's remark upon it is worth remembering. It comes of no ignoble lineage, nor shames its high descent. Footnote. Methought I saw a thousand fearful wrecks, ten thousand men that fishers gnawed upon, wedges of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl, inestimable stones, unvalued jewels, all scattered in the bottom of the sea. Some lay in dead men's skulls, and in those holes, where eyes did once inhabit, there were crept, as twere in scorn of eyes, reflecting gems, which wooed the slimy bottom of the deep, and mocked the dead bones that lay scattered by. King Richard III, Act One, Scene Four. End footnote. This is well put, but it falls short of the truth, for in these lines Keats has rehandled the lines from Shakespeare with so much skill and imaginative power that they surpass the material of which they were built. But, for our present purpose, it is more to the point to see if we can define the character of the changes that Keats has introduced, for, in this way, we have the best hope of getting upon the track of his purpose. It will be seen, on comparing the two passages, that Keats has, throughout, laid stress on the antiquity of the remains which Endymion found on the sea bottom while Shakespeare does not refer at all to this aspect of them. 
Thus, the great anchors of Clarence's dream become old rusted anchors. Wedges of gold are transformed into gold vase embossed with long-forgotten story. And several things not found in the earlier passage, such as the mouldering scrolls writ in the tongue of heaven by those souls who first were on the earth, are introduced, all emphasising the same point. Some men would have delighted to examine these relics, but it was not so with Endymion. A cold, leaden awe these secrets struck into him, and unless Diana had chased away that heaviness, he might have died. Line 136 What Keats appears to have in mind is that the study of old things, merely because they are old, is not an inspiring pursuit for a poet. Antiquarianism, as he may have met with in the pages of Strutt or of Ritson, only depresses the spirit of poetry, and may even kill it if a higher inspiration does not come to keep it alive. That Keats did not undervalue the imaginative treatment of stories of olden days is abundantly clear. But for one who could do this with the genius of Scott, there were scores who would be dull and wearisome, and the poet hurried from them to seek fresh inspiration elsewhere. Glaucus At length, as he lifted up his eyes, he saw, far in the concave green of the sea, an old man sitting calm and peacefully. Line 191 This was Glaucus, whose story fills the greater part of this book, for though Endymion plays an important part in the development of events, the interest attaching to his actions is for the time subordinate, while Glaucus and his past history take the most prominent place. Glaucus's Story The story of Glaucus, as he told it to Endymion, lines 318 and following, offers in its early stages some points of similarity to that of Endymion himself. He was a fisherman, and he delighted in his life upon the sea. He felt the same craving as Endymion had felt for quietness and meditation and communion with nature. The crown of all my life was utmost quietude. More did I love to lie in cavern rude, keeping in wait whole days for Neptune's voice, and if it came at last, hark and rejoice. Line 352 and he so far achieved his desire that he found himself able to live and move freely in the depths of the ocean. Its meaning It is not until we reach a later part of the story of Glaucus that we meet with any very clear indications of its allegorical meaning, but it may be worth while to point out at once what appears to be the true line of interpretation, making use by anticipation of clues that will be found further on. The story of Endymion, as we have seen, represents, in one aspect, the growth of the new spirit which was making itself felt in English poetry before the time of Keats, and which found its fulfilment in what we know as the New Romantic Movement. It is this more general side of his theme that the poet appears to be dealing with in the third book, the more individual and personal aspect of it being dropped for the time. A New Poetic Movement just as Endymion represents the poetic spirit which was animating the age of Keats, so Glaucus, in his youth, may be regarded as representing a different poetic spirit, animating an earlier age. Footnote. 
it does not appear necessary to take the thousand years, line 326, in a literal sense. End footnote. His loneliness, his longing for utmost quietude, his desire to be free of Neptune's kingdom, line 377, his entrance into this new life, his passion for and pursuit of Scylla, all these early experiences, corresponding largely to those through which Endymion passed, represent the yearnings, the idealisms, and the tentative efforts which belong to the development of a new movement, and, while the details vary, the general course that it follows is much the same in one age as in another. Such a movement, for example, was that which had for its aim the attainment of correctness of style and polish of form in the days of Waller and his contemporaries, and those who kept that ideal before them no doubt strove with no less earnestness and sincerity to reach it than the poets of a later age strove after the different ideals that seemed to them so much loftier. We are told clearly about the earnestness and eagerness of the pursuit. My passion grew the more, the more I saw her dainty hue gleam delicately through the azure clear, until twas too fierce agony to bear. Line 407 The Failure But, from this point, his story ceases to resemble that of Endymion, for, impatient at his want of success in attaining his ideal, Glaucus turned aside to seek help from Circe, and, under the influence of her baleful charms, allowed himself to be seduced from his aim, to forget his high ideal, and to follow an unworthy and degrading course of life. After a time, he came to himself and saw in her true light the witch to whose charms he had surrendered. He watched her as she exercised her evil influence upon those around her. Wizard and brute, laughing and wailing, grovelling, serpentinging, showing tooth, tusk, and venom bag and sting. Oh, such deformities! Line 500 until he was filled with remorse. But it was too late. He had incurred the fierce displeasure of the goddess and was condemned to an age-long decrepitude. He plunged once more into the ocean, only to discover that Scylla was dead, slain by the hated power of Circe. And, as for himself, it was not long before his limbs became gaunt, withered, sapless, feeble, cramped, and lame. Line 637. If we now attempt to follow up the clue which has guided us thus far, it would appear that we must look for some critical phase in the development of English poetry, where, in the view of Keats, things took a disastrous course. Where poetry had turned aside from its nobler aims, became unfaithful to its lofty ideals, and falling under influences which, though superficially attractive, were essentially mean and base, was reduced to a state of decrepitude. And it is not difficult to put one's finger upon the period when, in the opinion of Keats, a change of this nature had come over English poetry. He regarded the spirit that became dominant after the Restoration as a spirit of unfaithfulness to the true ideals of poetry. He hated, says Sir Sidney Colvin, the whole Augustan and post-Augustan tribe of social and moral essayists in verse, and Pope, their illustrious master, most of all. His feeling was, of course, 
shared by other poets of the time. There is a passage in an essay of Wordsworth's, which had appeared not long before Keats began to write Endymion, in which Pope and his school are described in terms that Keats would have heartily endorsed, and one may almost suspect that the younger poet is merely translating into the picturesque imagery of his poem what the elder one has expressed in direct criticism. Wordsworth on Pope The passage reads as follows. The arts by which Pope, soon afterwards, contrived to procure to himself a more general and a higher reputation than perhaps any English poet ever attained during his lifetime, are known to the judicious, and as well known is it to them that the undue exertion of these arts is the cause why Pope has for some time held a rank in literature from which, if he had not been seduced by an overlove of immediate popularity, and had confided more in his native genius, he never could have descended. He bewitched the nation by his melody, and dazzled it by his polished style, and was himself blinded by his own success. Having wandered from humanity in his eclogues, with boyish inexperience, the praise which these compositions obtained tempted him into the belief that nature was not to be trusted, at least in pastoral poetry. To prove this by example, he put his friend Gay upon writing those eclogues which the author intended to be burlesque. The instigator of the work and his admirers could perceive in them nothing but what was ridiculous. Nevertheless, though these poems contain some detestable passages, the effect, as Dr. Johnson well observes, of reality and truth become conspicuous even when the intention was to show them groveling and degraded. Keats on the Classical School in Sleep and Poetry, which had appeared only a few months before Keats wrote the passage now under consideration, he had expressed his feelings on this matter in no uncertain way. After speaking with enthusiasm of the work of the poets of the Elizabethan age, when the muses were well-nigh cloyed with honours, he goes on to ask, Could all this be forgotten? And the answer is, Yes, a schism nurtured by foppery and barbarism made great Apollo blush for this, his land. He speaks of them as dead to things they knew not of, and finally denounces them as an ill-fated, impious race, that blasphemed the bright lyrist to his face, and did not know it. No, they went about, holding a poor decrepit standard out, marked with most flimsy mottos, and enlarged the name of one Boileau. Book Two line 181 and following. The very expressions of which Keats makes use in this passage suggest, in a striking way, its relation with this part of the story of Glaucus. While under the spell of Circe, he was dead to the beauty of Scylla, he had been guilty of impiety in deserting the nobler ideal for the baser. He was certainly ill-fated, and the word decrepit would apply more exactly to him as described in the story, than to the standard of the school of Pope. We may take it, then, that Keats is, in this passage, describing to us, in picturesque form, what he regarded as the tragical history of English poetry after the Restoration. He shows us how it was ready for a fresh adventure, and how, when a new and beautiful ideal was in sight, it had allowed itself to be turned aside from its high aims, and had abandoned itself to the pursuit of false pleasures, 
a course that resulted in a long period of hopeless futility. The ideal had, to all appearance, perished. Such was certainly his view of the course of poetry in that period, and it would appear that this is the real meaning of the story of Glaucus. What Circe stands for. It seems, indeed, that Keats, not content with drawing this unflattering picture of the general tendency and influence of the school of poetry for which he felt such a hearty dislike, has, in the figure of Circe, sketched a portrait, or perhaps one should say, a caricature, of no lesser person than its distinguished head and chief, Pope himself. This is suggested by certain resemblances between the expressions which Wordsworth applies to Pope in the passage quoted above, and the account of Circe in the poem. Footnote. Note, for instance, the arts by which Pope contrived, the undue exertion of these arts, and compare what is said of Gay's eclogues. The instigator of the work, Pope, could perceive in them nothing but what was ridiculous, with line 509. Oft times, upon the sudden, she laughed out. End footnote. It is confirmed by the description of those who surrounded Circe as showing tooth, tusk, and venom bag, and sting. Line 502. Words that aptly represent the tribe of petty and malicious satirists that basked in the sunshine of Pope's favours, or, more often, writhed under his lash. But the passage that appears to leave little, if any, room for doubt, as to the intention of Keats, occurs a little further down in the description of the same incident. Avenging, slow, anon she took a branch of mistletoe, and emptied on a black, dull, gurgling phial groaned one and all, as if some piercing trial was sharpening for their pitiable bones. She lifted up the charm, appealing groans from their poor breasts went suing to her ear in vain. Remorseless as an infant's beer, she wished against their eyes the sooty oil, whereat was heard a noise of painful toil, increasing gradual to a tempest rage, shrieks, yells, and groans of torture pilgrimage, until their grieved bodies gan to bloat and puff from the tail's end to stifled throat. Then was appalling silence. Then a sight more wildering than all that horse of fright. For the whole herd, as by a whirlwind writhen, went through the dismal air like one huge python antagonizing Boreas, and so vanished. Yet there was not a breath of wind, she banished these phantoms with a nod. Line 513. The Dunciad. One can hardly fail to recognize in these lines a picture, drawn with no small degree of humor and skill, of the treatment meted out by Pope to the petty scribblers of his day in the pages of the Dunciad. The merciless spirit in which the punishment was administered, the shrieks and yells and groans that it produced, and the entire disappearance of the victims from the literary stage are excellently depicted. Horneck, Room, Jacob, Good. Who would ever hear their names today unless he reads the lines in which they received their castigation? Pope, indeed, banished these phantoms with a nod. The words, avenging, slow, with which the passage referring to the Dunciad opens, 
may or may not have been chosen with reference to that poem, but they apply to it more exactly than they do to the Circe of classical legend. In the preface to the first edition, 1728, Pope indicates that his purpose is to avenge himself upon his enemies. I will only observe, as a fact, that every week for these two months past, the town has been persecuted with pamphlets, advertisements, letters, and weekly essays, not only against the wit and writings, but against the character and person of Mr. Pope, while, as for the slowness, the same preface speaks of it as having been the labour of full six years of his life. The Story of the Rescued Scroll An incident that is related a little further on in the story of Glaucus appears to carry a meaning that confirms the line of interpretation that has been given to the preceding part of the poem. After Glaucus has passed a long time in the state of decrepitude to which he had been reduced by Circe, he was one day sitting on a rock that stood out above the spray when he saw a vessel approach. A storm arose, the vessel was wrecked before his eyes. The feebleness to which he had been reduced made of no avail his eager desire to save those who were drowning, and he saw one after another sink helpless into the deep. While he was still watching, there emerged from the waves an old man's hand, holding out a scroll and a wand. Glaucus seized these treasures, and even touched the hand that held them, but it slipped from his grasp and sank. The storm abated, and the sun shone again. I was athirst to search the book, and in the warming air parted its dripping leaves with eager care. Strange matters did it treat of, and drew on my soul, page after page, till well nigh won into forgetfulness. Line 676 And, above all, he found, to his great joy, that the book contained the promise of his ultimate deliverance, for it spoke of a youth, by heavenly power loved and led, who should stand before him, and who was to be told how to bring about the redemption of Glaucus from the punishment to which he had been condemned. And it was added, The youth-elect must do the thing, or both will be destroyed. Line 710 A Redeeming Influence To interpret rightly the significance of this incident in relation to the meaning of the book as a whole, we must look for some influence that gave promise of new life to English poetry after the period of decrepitude which was the penalty of yielding to the influence of Pope. It may be well to note in passing that we are not concerned with the justice or injustice of such a method of representing this school of poetry, whether it is to be regarded as fair, though severe satire, or an unfair caricature, is a matter outside our present inquiry. There is no doubt as to the views of Keats on the point, and the interpretation here suggested corresponds with those views. It is, however, generally agreed that the influences which brought about a change of spirit in English poetry are represented most completely in the revival of interest in the ballad, and that Bishop Percy's relics of ancient English poetry at once expressed and stimulated this interest in the most effective manner. Wordsworth, in the essay to which reference has already been made, speaks with great enthusiasm of Percy's work, and after pointing out the influence, that it had exerted on the revival of poetry in Germany, adds, For our own country, its poetry has been absolutely redeemed by it. Footnote. Prose works of William Wordsworth. 
edited by night volume two page two hundred and forty seven it is worth noting that in september eighteen seventeen when keats was writing this third book of endymion he was staying at oxford with his friend bailey and his letters record that they had been reading wordsworth together see letter to reynolds twenty first of september eighteen seventeen in the letter written to bailey a little later november eighteen seventeen he refers again to wordsworth End footnote. the correspondence between this expression of wordsworth's and the story as shaped by keats is so striking that one can hardly suppose it to be accidental especially when taken in conjunction with the parallelism previously noted between essay and poem and it is not unlikely that in this sentence we have the germ out of which the incident originally grew in the mind of keats the history of the ballads when we come to examine the details of the incident their correspondence with the history of the ballads becomes evident he tells us in words which seem carefully adapted to the meaning underlying the surface that the crew had gone by one and one to pale oblivion line six hundred and sixty five and even the one whose hand emerging held up the scroll that glaucus safely grasped was not himself rescued but sank again and disappeared this corresponds exactly with the fate that has overtaken the makers of the ballads some fragments of their work have been rescued from destruction but they themselves have all sunk down into oblivion not even their names have survived nor is it known who gathered together the ballads that percy found in the famous scroll that he rescued only by a hair's breadth from destruction yet if only the lovers of poetry had stirred themselves earlier, how much more might have been rescued? It was not till the publication of Alan Ramsey's Evergreen and Tea Table Miscellany, and Bishop Percy's Relics, 1765, says Mr. Andrew Lang, that a serious effort was made to recover Scottish and English folk songs from the recitation of the old people who still knew them by heart. And when we ask why the effort was not made earlier, the answer that Keats puts forward was that it was due to the paralysing effect of the influence of the school of Pope. Oh, they had all been saved, but crazed eld annulled my vigorous cravings, and thus quelled and curbed, think on't, O Latmian, did I sit writhing with pity, and a cursing fit against that hell-born Circe? Line 661. The interest that they aroused is described in the lines already quoted, and the story goes on to tell of the promise of redemption that was contained in the scroll, and of how this promise was fulfilled when Endymion, representing the spirit of the new poetry, scattered first upon Glaucus, and then upon Scylla, some of the powerful fragments of the rescued scroll, and how, under its magic influence, Glaucus was restored to his youthful vigour and beauty, and Scylla came to life again. Underneath the symbolism, we can hardly fail to recognise that Keats is representing to us the restoration of a true poetic ideal, and the infusion of fresh life and energy into poetry after its long period of futile decrepitude, and that he is emphasising the part played by the rediscovery of the ballads in bringing about this renaissance. The other details of the story, the undoing of the tangled thread, the thread which was so weak for Glaucus, but which Endymion handled safely, the reading of the shell on which Glaucus could see no sign or character, the breaking of the wand against the lyre, 
which was followed by some sweet and sudden music. All these are significant in different ways of the magic power imminent in the spirit of the new poetry. The Task of Glaucus It will be remembered that the same passage that gave to Glaucus the hope of ultimate redemption spoke of a task that he must undertake during the period of his bondage. All lovers, tempest-tossed, and in the savage overwhelming, lost, it shall deposit side by side, until time's creeping shall the dreary space fulfil. Line 703 This may be taken to represent the reverend regard that was paid to the great poets of former times, even during the period of poetical decrepitude. There is no lack of evidence on this point. Dryden, in his Preface to the Fables, for example, makes a comparison between Chaucer and Ovid, which works out, on the whole, to the advantage of the English poet. The imitation of Spencer, sometimes in form only, at other times in a way that shows a feeling for the magic beauty of his poetry, was a frequent occupation among the minor and an occasional amusement of the major poets of this time. Footnote. Professor Phelps has an interesting chapter on this matter in the beginnings of the English Romantic Movement, Gin, and in an appendix gives a list of 57 imitations of Spencer published between 1706 and 1775. End footnote. While Johnson's Lives of the Poets and Thomas Wharton's Observations on the Fairy Queen, which appeared only nine years after the death of Pope, illustrate the same feeling. The spirit that had animated these poets was no longer a vital force in English poetry, but the care that was taken of them was a hopeful sign for the future. When Endymion came to them, he found their patient lips all ruddy, for here death no blossom nips. Line 739 That is to say, their poetry remained unspoiled, even though for the time they could not be said to exercise any living influence. But now, after renewing the youthful vigour of Glaucus and Scylla, Endymion passed on, showering those powerful fragments on the dead, and, as he passed, each lifted up his head, as doth a flower at Apollo's touch. Line 784 The revival of interest in poetry, which resulted from the study of the ballads, spread to the works of the older poets, so that they began once more to take their place among the vital influences of the day. The music of poetry was once more heard in the land. Delicious symphonies, like airy flowers, budded and swelled, and full-blown, shed full showers of light, soft unseen leaves of sounds divine. Line 798 The Other Host As the host of those who had been redeemed by this magic power, moved on their way to the palace of Neptune, they saw descending, thick, another multitude, whereat more quick moved either host. Line 820 This is probably intended to refer to the romantic movement on the continent of Europe, more particularly in France and Germany, which developed side by side with the movement in England, and to the way in which each movement stimulated the other. The Festival in Neptune's Palace the closing part of the book describes the joyous celebration of this fresh renaissance held in the palace of Neptune, symbolical of the enthusiasm and delight that were aroused by the revived interest in the poetry of past ages. 
The general bearing of the passage seems sufficiently clear, but there are two incidents in it that require a little closer examination. Oceanus. The first of these is the appearance of the festival of a number of the more ancient gods. On Uzi throne, smooth-moving, came Oceanus the old, to take a latest glimpse at his sheepfold before he went into his quiet cave to muse for ever. Line 993. And with him came Doris, and Nereus, and Amphion, an era for Arion, and others. We cannot but call to mind the passage in the second book, lines 639 and following, where Endymion comes upon the vision of Sibylle in the course of his wanderings underground. In both cases, Keats appears to be suggesting that the spirit of poetry, as it found expression in the earliest efforts of mankind, is looking, with benevolent regard, upon this latest manifestation, differing greatly in form and expression, yet animated by the same spirit of reverence, and fostered by the same divine protection as in former ages. THE SWOONING OF ENDYMION The second tells of the swoon into which Endymion fell after looking upon this vision of the elder gods. The palace whirls around giddy Endymion, seeing he was there far strayed from mortality. Line 1005 He fell unconscious at the feet of Neptune and was carried away by the Nereids. It can hardly be doubted that some distinct meaning underlies this incident, and, keeping a firm hold of the clue by which we have been guided thus far, we may arrive at a reasonable interpretation of it. The salient points that must be kept in view are that it is Endymion who has played a leading part in the revival of the dead forms of those who had been tended by the care of Glaucus, and yet, when the revival is complete, and is the occasion of great rejoicing, Endymion alone is unable to bear it, and sinks into unconsciousness, notwithstanding the assurances that he has received of an early fulfilment of his desires. Bearing in mind that Endymion stands for the spirit of the new poetry, we may recognise, as has already been pointed out, that we have here sketched for us the way in which this spirit brought renewed life and significance into the study of the earlier poets. They had never ceased to be regarded with respect and admiration, but under the new influence they came to have a fresh vitality that was a source of delight and an occasion for thanksgiving. So far the path is fairly plain, and though the next stretch of it is less clearly marked, we are probably following the right track if we interpret the remaining part of the story as showing that, although the spirit of the new poetry has reacted thus powerfully on the older poetry, it cannot live upon the result of this. There is hope and promise that its ideals may be fulfilled, but, for the moment, the very success that it has achieved in giving new life and meaning to the poetry of earlier days may tend to lessen its own vitality. Certainly it cannot flourish upon inspiration drawn merely from its predecessors. In seeking them, it has strayed too far from mortality. It can only become a living force by seeking contact with the actual life of men and women, and by entering into their joys and sorrows. The way in which this is accomplished, and the ideal finally reached, will be found in the next book. The Introduction to the Third Book The lines that form the introduction to this book are not in Keats' happiest vein, nor do they, at first sight, appear to have much bearing on the main theme of the poem. 
their most obvious reference is political, and in this sense they denounce the empty pomp of incompetent rulers who have induced submissive peoples to receive them with mistaken enthusiasm. But an examination of the phrases used makes it evident that they may bear another meaning, and indeed appear to have been chosen for that purpose. We may question the poetic fitness of such expressions as most prevailing tinsel or buying vanities, but there can be no doubt that they effectively describe the feeling that Keats entertained for the writings of Pope and his school. He regarded them as showing not one tinge of sanctuary splendour, that is to say, they had never offered Milton's prayer that he might be, from out his secret altar, touched with sacred fire. And he may well have been thinking more of them than of those who had incurred Lee Hunt's political animosity when he wrote, With unladen breasts, save of blown self-applause, they proudly mount to their spirit's perch, their being's high account, their tip-top nothings, their dull skies, their thrones. Line 12 the contrast that he proceeds to draw describes no less clearly his feeling as to the loftier aims and ideals of the poetical movement in the midst of which he was living when compared with those of the previous age. No, there are throne seats unscalable but by a patient wing, a constant spell, or by ethereal things that, unconfined, can make a ladder of the eternal wind and poise about in cloudy thunder tents to watch the abysm birth of elements. Line 23. A careful reading of the whole passage makes it evident that while the political meaning is on the surface, the literary is clearly to be seen just underneath it. Moreover, while the political reference has no recognisable bearing on the matters with which the poem is concerned, the literary significance of the passage brings it into immediate relation with the meaning which we have found to underlie the story of this book. End of section.